0: Hello and welcome to Conversations with Mother Earth, brought to you by Grounded Press. My name is Dana Petrovich, and each week my guests and I explore one aspect of Mother Earth and the gifts that she gives us. We also discuss why these gifts are so precious and why we should value them. We got you curious? Good. We love curiosity. Let's start. One of many treasures Mother Earth has bestowed on us are gemstones. She patiently shapes and forms these mineral crystals for thousands, even millions of years, until they have the right shape and density. We humans have always had a deep appreciation for these gemstones. There are over 200 varieties, but especially for the four precious stones, diamonds, sapphires, emeralds, and rubies. Depending on their shape, size, and quality, we like to use them to show our status and wealth, and display them in our personal jewelry or even religious uh, or ceremonial objects, even weapons. Whenever used, they cause awe, admiration, or envy. Today's conversation with Mother Earth will not just focus on our long-time fascination with precious gemstones. Rather, we will unearth the more the other reason behind valuing gems and it is the hard and hazardous work and effort that it takes to take these gems out of mother earth and allow our journey or our fascination with gems to continue my today's guest andrew lucas has visited numerous extraction sites worldwide in countries like Afghanistan, Zambia, Sri Lanka or Mozambique. As you can see, we are filming this episode in person here in Shenzhen where Andrew resides as well. And Andrew is the president of Guild Institute of Gemology and the senior vice president of Guild Gem Laboratories. Andrew, welcome to Conversations with Mother Earth. Thank
1: you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here today. I always like an opportunity to talk about gemstones.
0: <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a very good because you actually dedicated your whole career to gems. What motivated you to do so?
1: A very indirect path in life brought me to gemstones. When I was a little kid, I was always sick and in the hospital. My father used to always read me the great adventure novels, always traveling somewhere around the world, great mythological adventures, seeking treasure. I think that stuck in my head, especially because I was always in a hospital bed. <laughs> I always wanted to get out, see the world, go for adventures. So various careers I had as a young man, Uh, They led to travel to various places around the world. And then by the time I was 25, I found gemstones. And that was the best one. That took me to all kinds of remote areas around the world that most people never see. And then I found, when I went to work at the Gemological Institute of America, they wanted someone to do a lot of the mind to market research for the supply chain of gemstones and that was perfect for me. And now I've come to China, continuing to do that work as an educator for the public and for the industry.
0: A fascinating journey. That's really fascinating journey, Andrew. And I remember you showing us some video material. You really went to far corners of the world where we normally don't travel as tourists. Which gems do you uh, like the most and why? There's a
1: couple of ways I look at gems. First, if we're looking at the appearance of the gem, it's something about the appearance that fascinates me. If we take sapphire, for example, there's types of sapphires that have what's called a cornflower blue appearance, and it can be a vivid blue color. But there are little tiny microscopic inclusions in the stone, little particles that scatter the light and they create a texture to this vivid blue color. And I always found that very, very fascinating, this texture to the color. Just beautiful. Also, some gemstones that are what we call phenomenal gemstones. They create rather unique or interesting optical effects one is color change and the most well-known one is alexandrite and it's very rare to have an alexandrite that goes from a a very attractive vivid bluish green color to purplish red color It has a beautiful change of color in daylight and in incandescent light where both colors are beautiful very rare stone and this fascinates me also quite a bit. So I would say it's these types of stones where not just the type of the gem, but something about the stone. Emerald, for example. Most people know about emerald. But to have an emerald where there's no enhancement and it's clean and it's cut in a cabochon, which is a nice cut for a man, I, I just find that quite an amazing stone because it's so rare. Or a savorite garnet, another beautiful vivid green gemstone it's a bright vivid green from Kenya and Tanzania Tanzania it's got the rarity it's got the beauty these type of gemstones excite me because of the appearance but also the people and the places tied into the gemstones. If I know there's a certain location that's very, very fascinating to me, very unique, and that gemstone comes from there, then this gives me a lot of interest in that gemstone also. Some places in Brazil, I just love the location. So any tourmaline, any gemstone from that location I think of the people there, my, my close friends, I think of the beauty of the location, and that adds to the beauty of the gemstone for me.
0: Yes, it's, it's a, that's a very good point that you're mentioning, with people. There are people behind, and this is, as I said at the beginning, this is the main focus of this, um, of this episode, because we value the gemstones already for, as I said at the beginning, for the message that we send with them. But it's people that we have to value as well, because it's a long, long road. It's a long journey that these uh, these um, gems take from deep in the earth, uh, sometimes from a river. Uh, people find them in rivers and other places, to, as you said, Brazil, Kenya, many places, until they arrive here in China or Antwerp or New York or. Bangkok or other places where gems are very much valued and sold worldwide. So, How are gems formed and where, where, where can we find them most? How, is it, tell us about some of these fascinating, I remember from our first conversation, some of these fascinating places where you go and how do you look for them?
1: Gems form by a variety of geological processes, especially colored gemstones, which is mainly the type of gems I love to talk about. There's a large variety of colored gemstones out there, and they form by a variety of different processes. Many of these processes involve bringing the correct chemical ingredients, the correct elements together to form the gemstone, and having the right heat pressure and amount of time for the crystal to grow some form by what we call generally metamorphic processes which means change if you have the formation of mountain ranges you might say that's creating the heat and the pressure to change rocks and to change the elements available that form different gemstones. So you have the elements available and you have the right heat and pressure. This is often true with ruby and sapphire. These metamorphic processes help to create ruby and sapphire. You can also have, taking ruby and sapphire for instance, gemstones related to volcanic activity. Basalt, a volcanic rock. The ruby and sapphire most likely does not form in the basalt, but it's brought to the surface by the volcanic reaction. You find these stones in Thailand, Nigeria, other sources where the ruby and sapphire are found related to basaltic rock, whereas your metamorphic, your change processes is more related, let's say, to Myanmar or to East Africa. Another type of geologic process is related to magma, molten rock. And there's a type of a deposit called a pegmatite. This is a large intrusion of molten rock into another rock. So it's a big body of molten rock and it cools slowly. And that's why you can find topaz and tourmaline often as large crystals because they're related to the pegmatite and that cools slowly and it has space for the crystal to grow so all these different processes are related to colored stones if you take Zambian emerald for existence for instance I should say then you have a rock called a schist, it's often related to mica, and then you have an intrusion of one of these pegmatites, now the pegmatite brings the beryllium for the mineral beryl The schist has the chromium and vanadium, these trace elements uh, called impurity elements that give the beautiful green color of emerald. So when you have the pegmatite intruding into the schist, that area around the intrusion of the pegmatite, they call the contact zone, that area has the right ingredients, if you think of geology like a kitchen, and the right temperature and pressure so that emeralds can form in Zambia. So it's really amazing how the Earth creates the right conditions, brings the right elements together, so you can have different gemstones and different colors of gemstones because Beryl can have aquamarine, a greenish-blue, morganite, an orangey-pink, emerald, a green-bluish-green color, heliodor, a yellow color, they're all varieties, color varieties of the mineral barrel, but different formations, different elements in different combinations give these different colors.
0: Fascinating. Truly, truly, truly fascinating. You have, I think you have the, one of the best jobs in the world. <laughs> A lot of people have told me that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> After me, because I am, uh, I'm teaching young, young, young adults. So that's that's also they're also gems. they're, they're also human gems. Um, no, but it, what you're telling about uh, the Mother Earth also brings the patience for these to form because it takes so much time. And I do admire always these, these different shapes and different color variations, even on regular stones, not only at gemstones. Mm-hmm. Even when you walk around and you see regular stones, there's so many different shades and different patterns on them. And I always think, my goodness, how long did it take for this to form? Uh, and when you talk about gems, of course, this is, there's so much time going into this. This is another element that we have to value, the time it takes for them to form.
1: Absolutely. And it's it's not just the amount of time, but the conditions all have to be right for the crystal to grow. The right heat, the right pressure maintained within the ranges that that particular gemstone forms in and the elements present to be able to give it the right mineral formation and the color, especially for a fine quality, beautiful color, Mm -hmm. extremely rare, which is only a tiny percentage of a production. Even Myanmar is known for high quality ruby, but it's only a small production that is that top top quality. For that to happen, it's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's a miracle of nature, you might say.
0: It's a true miracle. It's one of the mother earth's miracles, it truly mm-hmm. is. I agree completely. Harvey on time. Do you want to start the next one?
1: Oh, do we need to, is it close to the thirteen minutes? Do we want to restart the reset, camera?
0: Reset, because the next question is a little bit...
1: The next question will go very long. Yeah, exactly. We, we restarted the thirteen minute
0: cycle, because this will be... Not necessary. We Not can necessary. continue. Okay. Ah, okay. Okay. Good. We'll continue. All right. Speaking of people, um, those who extract um, the extraction sites became famous through the movie *The Blood Diamond*, which exposed the working conditions in mines in Sierra Leone. Tell us about these conditions worldwide, Andrew. And does the movie portray that? And how can we? buyers distinguish between between different extraction sites and the working conditions there or even avoid financing terrorism how how can we how can we do that this is
1: a subject i've had a lot of interest in and i've studied this subject very very closely um for over 20 years and for over 10 years, I've worked with law enforcement, international law enforcement, like the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Homeland Security, Customs, international law enforcement in France, in Israel, Thailand, India, Colombia, Brazil, around the world to look at the threat as far as criminal organizations or terrorism organizations of exploiting gemstones for money laundering or for moving moving currency around mm, something mm. that's liquid exactly and also into the humanity aspect with situations like blood diamond the exploitation of people and the exploitation of the environment oh yes and i really got fascinated that well before the movie blood diamond actually the situation that occurred in the early to mid-90s where you had the conflicts going on primarily in West Africa Mm -hmm. that led to the movie Blood Diamond and this kind of started with a drought in Angola one thing you need to understand about diamond production in West Africa and that is Namibia, Angola, Sierra Leone those countries in West Africa Those are primarily secondary deposits, what we call alluvial deposits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some of them are actually in Namibia. Some of them are actually marine deposits where they are mining at the ocean floor with large vessels for the mining. What happened is weathering, erosion, basically freed the diamonds from their host rock, the kimberlite, and transported them to another location, kind of concentrated them. And therefore, it's what we call an alluvial deposit. It can be along a river mm-hmm. or it can be along an ancient river that's no longer there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's a lot of the mining in West Africa. Now, most diamond deposits that you have in South Africa, in Botswana, that Botswana is a leading producer, in Russia, another leading producer, in Canada, an important producer, they are in the host rock, which is usually a kimberlite rock. In that case, it is a often a major investment for the mining. You often have a large open pit operation with massive trucks, massive equipment that eventually takes the pit down and in many cases will then go into a massive underground operation. So this is a huge investment. It's starting to look more like your strategic metals and major mining operations for copper or iron Mm. ore or material like that.
0: Mm.
1: In this type of operation, it's much easier for transparency, much easier to document the flow of the diamonds, because today it generally goes from a company like The beers or Rio Tinto, a major mining operation, to a major cutting operation, most of them in Surat, India. So it's big company dealing with big company. Now, West Africa, the alluvial deposits, that's a situation where you can have smaller scale mining, which is often the case for colored gemstones, similar. So you have more of the situation where it's more manual labor. Now, when you had the wars going on in the 1990s, which, you know, these were things that were left over, not to get too political, but left over from the Cold War with Russia and America. You had armed groups not really fighting for ideology, more fighting for control of resources. So the Cold War kind of ended... And you still had these armed groups, and each one wanted to control resources. In the case of Angola, Sierra Leone, you had these alluvial secondary deposit diamonds, along with timber, along with oil, along with various types of resources that could bring these groups money. So the wars were continued more for control of resources and money. In the case of the Blood Diamond, there was a situation in the early 90s in Angola where you had a drought. So the river Mm -hmm. came down, and you literally could pick diamonds up. I mean, literally, people were picking diamonds up. So, of course, armed groups tried to exploit that. Now, in the movie, Blood Diamond, like all movies, there was accuracy and there was inaccuracy. In this movie, it kind of looked like A company that seemed to be De Beers, but not called De Beers. They were trying to directly exploit the situation. It doesn't really, or didn't really work that way. You had a lot of intermediaries that would be there and buy up Mm -hmm. these diamonds. And then De Beers, in their role of custodian of the world diamond market, and I'm not trying to defend actions but in that role they wanted to buy up these diamonds so they didn't hit the market crash the diamond price temporarily and and hurt consumer confidence in the stability of diamond and the industry and, and the world kind of industry didn't have the mentality of today to really think about consequences on people. It wasn't so much in the forethought like it is today. And there hadn't been the type of publicity that could cause corporations harm mm. that there is today. So De Beers was buying up these diamonds from Angola, even though there were situations, severe situations of exploitation of people. Then this carried over into Sierra Leone, where the armed groups would literally use f- forced labor to mine these diamonds. And if other groups or other people were trying to mine them, you would have the situations where you would have arms cut off. Just unbelievable brutality, really crimes against humanity. This started to get public attention. And so that led to a U.N. mandate at that point. Organizations like Global Witness and other organizations, Amnesty International got involved. And then the diamond industry started to realize, one, one this is bad publicity, but not to sound quite so cold. There were a lot of people in the diamond industry that said, hey, we, we can't have this. We, we don't want to be associated with this. So then the UN made a mandate and the Kimberley Process Certification Scheme was devised. Now, this Kimberley process, this is to avoid conflict diamonds, diamonds involved in actual wars or guerrilla activity from entering the supply chain. This came about, oh God, my memory, I think this came about in 2000. At that time, there was a lot of pressure internationally to get these groups under control and get these wars stopped for the resources and so these wars started to subside in West Africa for these various resources including diamonds. The Kimberley Process Certification Scheme the claim is that 99.8% of conflict diamonds have been eliminated. A lot of these conflicts, actual conflicts, guerrilla war, has eliminated in West Africa. Now. A lot of criticism for the Kimberley process comes about in that you can get around the Kimberley process. There are ways to get around it, and there's no doubt that there is. Absolutely, there are ways that diamonds can enter the process, be certified on the Kimberley process, but not actually have gone through the regulations of the Kimberley process. That's why some governments, like in the U.S., they have actually tighter controls, than the Kimberley Process. There was also criticism like the situation where you had the dictatorship with Mugabe in oh, Zimbabwe. Yes, of course. To where course. Is technically their Kimberley Process, but you had definitely exploitation of people in the diamond fields controlled by the military, and these diamonds were legally entering the supply chain with Kimberley Process certificates. So that was a weakness, no doubt, with the Kimberley process because it wasn't, it wasn't a war going on in Zimbabwe. You had a leader of a country that was not moving along ethical lines for the treatment of the people and, you might say, how the funding of the diamonds was used. Uh, no doubt about it. This was a weakness of the system. There was recently some updates or, and proposed updates of the system and working with the EU to try and address that. So I would say, along these blood diamonds, I actually could show from the movie there was more horrific things that happened than the movie showed. The movie, I do not believe, was accurate in the portrayal of the company that everyone knows was meant to be De Beers. But there was also a meeting between the De Beers head and Global Witness early on, I believe, in the late 1990s, where ah, De Beers didn't have the right attitude. Global Witness became very offended, and there was this. And what needs to happen is not this, but cooperation. NGOs, I think, do a great job at bringing these things to the attention yes, of the world. absolutely. But absolutely. I've also found NGOs are a business, and they need to create a certain image of a situation that brings in more money. And I've worked with them in the past, and that has kind of disillusioned me for them also. Uh, but nothing's perfect. Certainly the gem industry is not perfect. So And governments are not perfect. They have their own interests, either financial or political. So all these organizations have their vested interests. And unfortunately, the vested interests do not always equate to helping the people on the ground. Yeah. The actual miners, the actual diggers. Exactly. So this is something that there needs much better cooperation on, much better cooperation, especially in Africa. Absolutely in Africa. If you look at the movie portrayed conflict diamonds or blood diamonds as 20% of the diamonds in the supply chain, that was too high. The industry had it around 1% to 2% my opinion, my observations, that was too low. I think probably around 4%. Now, maybe 20% of the diamonds in the supply chain were undocumented at that time. That's
0: possible, yes.
1: (laughs) But that's usually not because of some evil empire exploiting people. That's usually because of the opaque nature of the industry. And the industry tends to have an opaque nature. Excuse me, and we... We saw this when I dealt with law enforcement, not because of terrorism or criminal activity, but simply because they want to avoid duties and taxes.
0: They want to earn more <laughs> profits, which is a business way of, you know, Absolutely. Legit, legitimate and thing the, normally
1: to do. In the case of diamonds today, my God, the profit, you wouldn't believe, but on the wholesale trade level, the profit margins are very thin. So they look to avoid export duties. They look to avoid import duties, taxation. That's one of the main reasons. And another reason for opaqueness, I always tell people, if you're in the industry and you're A, B, and C, if you're B and you're dealing with A and C, if A finds out who C is, B is finished.
0: Exactly, you have no all no to play, <laughs> yeah. exactly. You
1: will be cut out. Exactly.
0: I don't care if you're family,
1: <laughs> you're going to yeah. be cut out if your B and A finds out who C is. So the opaqueness is often a business survival. Yes. If you look at diamonds, 80% of diamonds is large scale mining operations, 20% is your small scale. A lot of it out of the West African countries. Now, if you look at colored gemstones, when I got into business, 80% by value was small scale, 20% large scale. Because there has been more investment and large scale operations, uh, Gemfields is a, a company that's a good company to use as a model. I would say by value it's probably 65% small scale, 35% large scale, if you look at all the varieties of colored stones.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That's a very good point. We'll come to that in a moment, yeah.
1: And if you look at by um, number of mines, though, I'd still say it's still at least 80% small scale and 20% large exactly. scale.
0: Exactly. So you
1: have a lot of these these... Secondary deposit and small tunnel mining producers around the world in Africa, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, smaller scale, but larger numbers of people that are producing colored stones. This is very difficult to document. The larger scale companies, it's easier to make regulations for protecting the employees, for protecting the environment, and having a transparent supply chain. Yes. And they need to be protected. The smaller scale operation, the problem is a lot of things that are trying to do to protect them is actually taking away their ability to mine. There needs to be a way to bring them from what my, my friends in, in this area of the industry like to call themselves an informal channel into a formal
0: channel, but yes. allows them to enter the formal channel. Exactly. That's, that's exactly that a good point because we see something that's in the other areas, for example, uh, where, where people, what, what you are portraying, um, and this is what happened in Mozambique and other places, when people have to, when diamonds or or. or is mining uh, mining work is the choice or is the uh, is the reality between eating and not eating? Then people, of course, are more uh, um, vulnerable to be exploited by all sorts of groups who's, uh, for their own for their own interest. So we have to increase overall the living conditions of these people not just in the, within the mining industry but also in other areas which is also uh, waste collection where people work in horrible conditions through going through our waste to also get metals and valuable um, so when if people are so poor the conditions of course are the way they are and of course i believe that the ngos are doing a great job but we have to do more. We have to do more for the economy overall, more transparency, more supervision, more support to get these people to a better standard of living.
1: Absolutely. And it's it's, it's easy to make regulations for a large-scale mining company. That's relatively easy. And to enforce them. And like the company Gemfields, they paid the most corporate taxes for a few years in Mozambique mm-hmm. compared to any other industry for gemstones. That's, that's almost unbelievable. So the large-scale operations, it's easier to have the regulation for, but it's difficult to customize the regulation for the small-scale operations, especially in Africa. And you have situations where people will go and mine rare earth elements yes exactly small scale mining then there'll be a ruby find in somewhere in madagascar they'll move there and they'll mine the rubies cuz they'll make more money then they'll be mining gold a couple months later and it's often the people in madagascar mining the gemstones, a good percent of them may be from Tanzania, Mm -hmm. because they're experienced miners from Tanzania, and they move around, and they hit these deposits, because many of these secondary gemstone deposits, especially colored gemstones, they're mined for a while, then that area is finished. They're not finding them so easily Mm -hmm. so they move on to something else and you have this migration of secondary deposit miners in africa that's how they make a living some are full-time some of them are farmers and they know how to do some mining so they'll farm non-farming season they'll go and they'll look for gemstones so this is a situation you have in africa what you don't want to happen, Brazil is a great country for gemstone mining. The environmental laws, the the employee laws in Brazil really protect the miners. They protect the environment. They do a great job, but it's difficult for small-scale colored stone mining to get started. They can't meet all the regulations. There hasn't been a customization to protect the environment protect the employees, the miners, but allow the mining to actually begin and be Mm. profitable. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Sri Lanka has over two thousand five hundred years history of gemstone mining. That's long. And the vast majority of it is small scale. We're talking vertical pits that are like two by four meters. They go down usually 5 to 25 meters and then they dig these horizontal tunnels and they scoop up the gem gravel. The whole island, the, the at least the, the lower half of the island has these secondary gemstone deposits. They bring it up to the surface, they wash the gravels and they continue to find sapphire and other stones for over 2,500 years. They really have the... the laws, the regulations set up for small-scale mining. Many of these mines are in agricultural fields, in rice paddies. So you see this rice paddy, and then you see this little cover and a pit. Yes, 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 remember the videos you showed, yes. (laughs) They're bringing up the gravels, they're washing the gravels. It's often a partnership between the owner of the property, the farmer, a gem dealer, the miners. Very little has changed over 2,000 years, except now they have a little diesel uh, pump that they can pump the water out of when the water comes into the mine. That's the main change over 2,000 years. This is small-scale mining, but sometimes they'll have 6,000 of these claims that have four pits all working on the farm so you have A potential of 24,000 small pit operations going on in areas like Ratnapura, Ilahara, still producing sapphires. And what's so interesting is you have the pit, they have to put down an environmental deposit, they have to refill the pit after they mine, restore it. Of course, the farmer is often involved, so he wants to, he'll grow crops there again. Then later on, somebody will say, I want to dig a pit here again because of these tunnels these horizontal tunnels and they have to leave support they'll dig in an area with the support they may find a sapphire that will cut to a top quality 100 carat stone that's incredible it's yeah. amazing it, it's a sustainability that most people would not imagine but because of the way they found to do it over time it's a sustainable small scale mining
0: without any chemicals that you see in gold, mining, or any Absolutely, other Absolutely, with the gems. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this is a perfect model for Africa, especially colored gemstones in East Africa, but... It's more difficult in Africa because the deposits are found. You have a rush of thousands of miners digging like crazy. The pits, maybe in Sri Lanka, they know how to do the pits. It's very safe. They know how to support them. In Africa, often you just have a mad rush to get the stones as quickly as possible because it's often either illegal or in a very gray area of legality. This is a problem that has to be addressed in Africa, but it has to be addressed in a way that brings these people into a formal system. It doesn't just marginalize them, but also addressed in a way that protects the investment and the legality of the large-scale operations. You need to have both going on so that you don't have the exploitation that happens of the miners and the destruction of the environment. Mm-hmm. And getting into the environment, you know, there's been a lot of, of study on the sapphire mining in Madagascar, other colored gemstone mining in East Africa, and th- this issue needs to be addressed. Yeah. There's no yeah. doubt about it. I, I get a little defensive because if you look at the mining scale for some of the rare earth elements, and what's happening with the environment. Colored stone mining is very, very small in scale, very small in scale on the level of damage to the environment. And the, especially the colored gemstone industry, we're not very good at communicating. We're not very good at defending ourselves. We're kind of opaque. And so we're a bit more of an easy target and we don't make the donations that larger industries in strategic metals in things like that make. And sometimes I feel like the level of the publicity is not equal to the level of the situation that other industries have. Um, But I don't want to use that as an excuse.
0: Exactly. Uh, Going back to the supply chains, you said Sri Lanka has all thousands of these small, uh, uh, small miners, uh, these small pits. I remember seeing this from the video material you'll share with us so that our listeners and viewers can see these as well. So these, um, we have a thousands, and these are attached to the global supply chain. They sell to the global markets. How can we learn from that and transport that? Yes, you said in Africa everything is a rush and get it, But how can we still transport that knowledge of 2,500 years of Sri Lanka's tradition to other places of the world? What can we take with us and say, look, this is how Sri Lankans are doing. This is how we will do it somewhere else.
1: This is something that... Really, you need to bring in people with experience to look at, because Sri Lanka's got the right model, but you cannot just transport it to East Africa, because the Sri Lankans, not just the mining, they do cutting, they do heat treatment of ruby sapphire, and let me tell you, there's no better trader than a Sri Lankan trader. I mean, a Sri Lankan, they are so fantastic at going around the world and buying, they're major buyers in East Africa, buying and selling and trading they do the whole supply chain from the mine to the retailer so this has to grow organically to a degree of course Sri Lanka had protective legislation for their industry a few decades ago that actually harmed it They've now changed that so their dealers can go buy rough in East Africa, bring it back to Sri Lanka, and this allowed Sri Lanka to regain their position as a leader in cutting and trading sapphire. Thailand has a very open market policy. Thai buyers can go around the world, buy rough and bring it in, don't have a duty problem, manufacture it in Thailand. Thai, Bangkok and Shantaburi, Thailand, are major, major trading centers. Jaipur, India, is a major cutting and trading center. Sri Lanka is a mining center, cutting, and global mm-hmm. trading center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But to do that in Africa, you have to be careful. You have situations where a government will say, all right, we're going to outlaw the export of rough. You can't do that until the industry has been developed. There needs to be an existence of both and an investment. And the jewelry industry has been burned before, mm-hmm. investing in mining and then the mines are nationalized by the government. And I'll be quite frank, when someone nationalizes the mines in Africa and says it's for the good of the people, the, good of the people usually wind up to be a very small group, very small group that of it benefits. People, yes. So there is this type of a problematic situation. If you look at Botswana with diamonds, they have really been quite smart about it. They've realized they cannot put India and Antwerp out of business for the diamond cutting. And I really don't think it's uh, sustainability when you put a million people in the diamond business out of work in India. Mm -hmm. That's not sustainable. So you need to grow both. So, Botswana still exports rough. They have a, with De Beers, Debswana, they still work together to export rough. But they have worked with companies in Antwerp, in Israel, and in India to open up diamond manufacturing plants in Botswana. So smart where it makes sense economically, the type of diamonds that they manufacture, and start to grow expertise.
0: Exactly.
1: And start to understand how competitive diamond cutting is globally. It's extremely competitive. If you're going up, you want to compete with the Indian manufacturers, you've got to be on it for technology, skill, and hard work. So they're understanding that. They're finding their place in it. And I believe this can happen through colored stones, but it can't happen overnight in East Africa. There has to be a mutual cooperation. Then you can start to develop moving further up the supply chain from raw material to manufacturing to trading. But even with the raw material, Learning the value of the moral material and the trading and learning how to bring it to market, there, which Jem Fields has done in Zambia and Mozambique, there is a huge benefit in just that, in capitalizing on the national resource, the national treasure of those countries, and bringing it into market in a smart way that brings the most value for the people in that country, but also sustains the industries globally and many.
0: Andrew, another topic. Um, you exposed so many challenges we, we see along the supply chain of uh, gems, all sorts of gems. And it's not easy. There's not a the black and white, as, as you showed us. It definitely isn't, because there is, you have to strike a balance be- between feeding people, feeding families, creating jobs, finding the right rubies, supplying the global market and us who want to buy those and who are choosy and selective How can we strike a balance between preserving Mother Earth and yet extracting these gems, because we do love them, Um, because, I mean, we all agree, Mother Earth is the most precious gem.
1: Absolutely.
0: So how do we preserve that most precious gem while extracting all the little gems that she hides inside her? How do we do that? I think
1: we're moving in a good direction. I think we still have a ways to go. But I think the direction for more... I know the direction for more transparency and more addressing of these issues is definitely taking place. I've seen where we've had boycotts and bans Mm -hmm. on gemstones or countries. I think there have been some that have been warranted and there have been some that have not been warranted. And I think you get into situations where there's political motivations, there's economic motivations, and sometimes the people that get squeezed the most are the people that you're supposed to be helping. Though it's complex and it's difficult. When I was a young man, I thought everything was black and white, and now I've learned everything is gray. (laughs) Everything absolutely is gray. I would say... Gemstones are something that are a great adventure. I always say, I'm I'm in the wrong century. There's no more adventure today. It is truly the last adventure luxury product. There are truly people in the world, these small scale miners that they live to be treasure hunters. They love to be a treasure hunter. There's also people that have to do it because it is an economic opportunity Mm -hmm. for them that we're not giving them for something else.
0: For their families.
1: And then there's a minimal amount of exploitation, and that's what we want to put an end to. We want to seek it out, bring it out in a fair manner, expose the truth on it, and address the reality. Mm -hmm. So I don't think boycotting gemstones or synthetic diamonds, okay, I'm all for synthetic or natural diamonds, but synthetic diamonds use power to create them. How is that power generated? Is it generated by coal? What is that power generated? It's like an electric car. There is nothing that's purely clean. Yeah. So you have to address the situation in all these types of manners. Yes. So eliminating a natural gemstone, you're eliminating an avenue of survival or an avenue of growth for very marginalized people. And also the people that do the manufacturing in India, Diamond in Surat, Colored Stones in Jaipur, the manufacturing in Sri Lanka and in Brazil and other countries. This is an economic growth opportunity. I have seen people benefit from the growing consumerism in Colored Gemstones. I have seen the exploitation decrease, even though we still have a long way to go. I am hoping for a better cooperation of NGOs, journalism, governments, and the industry, and consumers that ultimately make the demand. And companies like Cartier or major retailers, they do listen. They don't want bad publicity tied into that romantic, good-feeling purchase. So if we continue to do this, and we're all honest and fair with each other about it, and it's getting better. It's a little painful, but it's getting better. We're on the right path. We need to keep going down it.
0: Yeah, that's that's a very good point. It's a very good point. We really have to find a balance where, between supporting these people and continuing and improving their working conditions so that we can even value our friends, our precious, our precious friends even more. Fascinating work, fascinating conversation, Andrew, uh, as always with you. I, every conversation has been truly fascinating. I could listen to you, to you for hours. My listeners are now really curious about you. Where can they find you? Okay. I am so
1: non-social media. <laughs> I've never been on Facebook. I've never done a tweet. I, what's the photo thing? Insta. I've, I've never put a photo on Instagram. Um, I am on uh, WeChat, but I never have any moments or anything. Basically, um, we can put my email address. We can put yes, that we up. Can share, that yeah. is something that I do. Ch- I have to check sometimes for work. <laughs> that is probably the best way to get a hold okay,
0: of me. <laughs> okay, we'll share that with you, dear listeners. You can find it on, so, on the on the page. I so belong in a
1: in a in another century, <laughs> an earlier century. <laughs>
0: That's also It gives you... It has its benefits, Andrew. Trust me. It has its benefits. But thank you for joining today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights about our precious friends um, and telling us about the working conditions of people who work for us. And... If there's anyone out there interested in becoming a young field
1: gemologist, send me an email. (laughs) There's very few of us in the world. (laughs)
0: Exactly.
1: exactly. There is a potential. There is a career for you,
0: dear listeners, if you're looking for a new direction in in your life. (laughs) Wonderful. This concludes today's conversation with Mother Earth, the last one to be aired in the year 2021. The next conversation will be in the new year, and of course for the new year 2022 we wish you luck happiness and most of all in these challenging times good health next year we will return again to the topic of forming and shaping but this time the sculpture won't be mother earth it's going to be a human being a fascinating human being stay tuned